0: It's great to be here with you. It's been a long time. I love this church. I love your leaders. I've known Scott and Steve for a long, long time, and I appreciate their ministry. Steve's one of the best communicators I've heard on a week to week basis. He just delivers a solid message. And uh, before I get into the message today, let me give you a quick update on the ministry of CFR. Uh, For 42 years, we've been focused on funding ministries so lives can be changed. And a few months ago, we surpassed a major milestone. We have now funded more than $1 billion worth of ministry projects since our inception. That is a great thing because that translates into changed lives. Uh, the way, our, yeah, that's what it's all about. We couldn't do any of it without you and without your partnership. So, the way our ministry model works, it's really pretty simple. Thousands of families, people like you and I, have invested a portion of our savings emergency funds, IRAs, old 401ks at CFR so we can help churches like Vero buy land and build buildings, make improvements, add campuses, uh, all sorts of things for God's glory and to help grow His kingdom. I've been part of the ministry for 17 years, and I've discovered there are three primary reasons why people love to invest at CFR. First, they love the interest rates that we're able to pay. They're higher than what you might expect and better than what your secular institution is going to offer. A second, people love helping churches and love helping churches save money on their loans because we are a not-for-profit Christian ministry and we operate very efficiently. We're able to offer very competitive loan rates to the churches that need to borrow. And uh, that means that there is more money for ministry, more money to make disciples, more money for missions. We think that's good stewardship and just makes a lot of sense. And finally, people love to be a part of something that's making a difference for eternity. Right now, we have over 40 church construction projects going on somewhere in this country. So when you invest at CFR, you're helping to build a church. You're helping to make one of those projects a reality. If you want to find out more, come talk to me. After our time of worship, I can give you an investor's packet like this that you can take home and read, and I can answer any questions you have. Thank you so much for your partnership here. Collectively, you have well over a million dollars invested with us, so you're helping us do our ministry all over the country. Thanks for helping us fund ministry and change lives. Now, let me pray, and then we'll get into the message here. Uh, God, we, we know you're present here, and we know you have a word for us, so we simply ask that we can uh, quiet our minds, uh, open our hearts, and be willing to receive whatever you have for us today. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. I was traveling a few weeks ago, and I went out for a walk, as I do, trying to get in my 10,000 steps for the day. And instead of listening to music or a podcast like I normally do, I simply paid attention to my surroundings. More specifically, I paid attention to the street signs I encountered and thought about what they meant. Here is an interesting one, speed limit, 14 miles per hour. You noticed that sign. Why not 15 miles per hour? Well, it wouldn't capture your attention because you've seen lots of those speed limit signs that say 15 MPH. You'd probably just ignore it. Why not 13 miles per hour? Well, 13 is an unlucky number. You can't have that. So 14 miles an hour is just right for this residential area. Here's a common sign, stop. It's the most popular sign in the world. You see it all the time, but some of you still don't know what it means. You think it means slow down just enough till you make sure the intersection's clear, then accelerate. That's wrong. Uh, if somebody keeps hitting you in the face and you say stop, you don't mean slow down. Just hit me a little bit slower. Would you, to you. you mean stop. Check this one out. No parking, fire lane. Really? Where is the fire? I can't park here for five minutes to drop off a plate of cookies to define folks who live here? How about if we change this sign to read, if you smell smoke and see flames, don't park here. In fact, don't park anywhere. Just keep driving because you don't want to be anywhere near a fire. Here's one I've never seen before. I'm not sure what it means. Weight reduced 50%. What action step do you take when you see this sign? You start throwing stuff out of your car to lighten the load? All right, kids, get out. Get out. Mom, you too, you're going to have to walk the rest of the way. Take your phones too, every little bit helps. All I really know here is that the weight reduction requirement took effect on 2-22-22, probably at 2:22 p.m. Think about the people who first saw that sign on 2-22-22. Man, if we had just come down this road a day earlier, we would have been fine. I don't know what we're going to do now. Here's the last one. This is a scary sign outside my hotel room. They want you to notice this sign. I know because it says in big letters, notice, you are parking and leaving your vehicle at your own risk. Please, I like how they're polite here, please lock all doors, not just some of them, and windows. Don't know how to lock a window. I know how to roll one up. After, glad they said after, removing any property or valuables from your vehicle, and then they get to the point. The hotel will not, in any event, be liable for loss or damage to your vehicle or property. Wow, what a surprise. How much do they have to pay a lawyer to come up with that wording? There are lots of signs out there, and that's not new. Fifty years ago, the five-man electrical brand released a song with the lyrics, Sign, sign, everywhere a sign, blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind. Do this, don't do that, can't you read the sign?" Can't you read the sign? God gives us signs too. But I wonder how often we miss the signs the Creator hangs right in front of our faces. Sometimes we just don't see them, or if we do, we simply ignore them altogether. Steve asked if I would share a message related to stewardship or giving or generosity. And of course, the most basic stewardship principle is that God owns it all. We already know that. But I wondered. What are the signs God uses to show us that He is the great giver? He is the generous one. From everlasting to everlasting, He gives and gives and gives. How does He communicate that reality to us? Well, maybe in more ways than you might have considered. And that's what I want to talk about today. Because here's the premise. If God is the great giver and you are crafted in His image then generosity is in your DNA. And if generosity is in your DNA, the abundant life Jesus promised you comes from you giving abundantly. Your joy and happiness come from what you give. So let's try to prove our premise this morning. Let's look at some of the signs that God is the great giver. And how about if we start here? For God so loved the world... He gave. Your brain probably wants to autocomplete that sentence with the rest of the words from John three sixteen. We recognize the famous first, declaring the ultimate expression of God's unbounded love. And while that single statement encapsulates the depth of His affection, God shows the breadth of His affection in ways we often overlook. We miss the signs. The truth is, because nothing is possible for the impossible for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We just sang that, right? The manifestations of His generosity are endless, and it's time we paid attention. He is, after all, the great giver, the generous one. Indeed, we serve a generous God who is active and alive. He is for us and with us. His mighty power and ever-present involvement in the cosmos crowd the pages of the Scriptures. And to the Father who always loves us, our well-being always matters." The first pages of the Bible expose this reality, as we shall see. It makes perfect sense that inventors, architects, artists, uh, songwriters, they all begin with the end in mind. A sense of creative calling inspires their actions and sets them in motion. They conceive of gadgets that make life better, they design buildings that invoke aesthetic pleasure, they paint Landscapes that draw viewers into a transcendent world. They write lyrics and melodies that touch the heart and elicit emotion. But all the fruit of their labor begins with seeds of purpose. It's the same with God. He didn't create the heavens and earth haphazardly. Purpose inspired design. Our Father, Son, and Spirit wanted to make a world where everything was good. For us to enjoy. In the beginning, the Bible says there was nothing. God took six days to form the universe, then rested on the seventh day. As he carried out his work, whatever God created, he described as good. His intentions were executed to perfection, of course. He didn't screw anything up. You and I might have messed something up. Like, um, I might have forgot to give the birds wings or something. I don't know. But not God. Everything he made, he stamped with his own personal seal of approval. He spoke light into existence. Same for the sky, dry land, seas, plants, animals, and so on. It was good, 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 good. On day six, after God created man and surveyed all he had done, it wasn't just good anymore. It was very good. God was happy with his work. And delighted to entrust a wondrous paradise to the beings molded in His image. And here's something very important. He gave us a remarkable capacity to enjoy the marvels of His creation. That's why you gasp when you see the Grand Canyon. When God built this world, we were on His mind. It makes you think of the psalmist's words from Psalm 8, 3, and 4. When I consider your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them?" One of my favorite seminary professors, Bruce Walkey, wrote, his creation reveals his immeasurable power, his bewildering imagination and wisdom, his immortality and transcendence. I believe it also reveals the spirit of generosity that accompanies His very presence and every activity in which He is engaged. Where there's smoke, there's fire. And where God is, which is everywhere, a halo of abundant giving radiates. It's difficult to quantify a virtue with a formula as in force equals mass times acceleration. But we might say generosity is, at its essence, a measurement of abundance. Generosity equals a spirit of unselfishness multiplied by quantity. It's giving anything, we like to use the words time, talent, and treasure, but it's giving anything freely, abundantly, wholeheartedly, happily for the good and well-being of another. You know it when you see it. The Israelites saw it up close and personal, and it went beyond manna from heaven and shoes that never wore out. So let's take some time to review part of their story and observe the signs of God's generosity toward them. First, they observed God employ his power to rescue them after four centuries of bondage. That was a generous gesture, wouldn't you say? He recruited a reluctant shepherd named Moses to represent his people and act as their military general. After several appearances before Pharaoh, a series of unpleasant to deadly plagues, and a final warning to their captor-in-chief, Moses secured permission to take the Hebrews and leave. We should note here that God made sure they didn't walk away empty-handed. He somehow inspired the Egyptians to be favorably disposed toward this people of his, so when the Hebrews asked for parting gifts, silver, gold, and clothing, the Egyptians complied. Sounds like a storybook ending, right? Well, not so fast. Soon after their march out of captivity, the plot twists like a salty pretzel. Pharaoh flinched. He had a change of heart. Exodus 14, 9, and 10 reads The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. This wasn't part of the script, was it? This was almost like you're pardoned by the president, but on your way home, a firing squad pulls you over. Now these Israelites, they're trapped between the devil and the deep Red Sea, and desperation overwhelms them. Disaster seems imminent. There's a roadblock ahead and a burnt bridge behind. There's nowhere to run and nowhere to hide. What just happened With their collective fight-or-flight mechanism activated, the Israelites, they freeze, and they cry out to the Lord. Ever been there? Standing in their sandals? Out of hope at the end of your rope? Crying out for help because you're helpless on your own? Maybe you weren't physically imprisoned, and your issue wasn't life or death, but it felt that way. Or it feels that way today because your problem isn't in the past. You're stuck now. Your finances are lean. Your job is in jeopardy. Your marriage is shaky. Your diagnosis is scary. Your family's fighting. Your friends are few and far between. You're facing a giant, feeling alone, hanging on for dear life. Whatever the case, take heart. The great giver Your rescuer and redeemer is strong. With the Israelites wallowing in fear, babbling nonsense, Moses speaks. Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. Wow, that's confidence. That sounds like Tom Brady in the huddle during a fourth quarter comeback. Hey, guys, I know we're down by six. There's not much time on the clock, but we've got this. Follow my lead we're going to win this game. We know what happens next, right? Yeah, Tom Brady wins the game. We know that. Um, But here with the Israelites, the Lord parts the waters, the Israelites escape on dry ground, and the Egyptian army gets swallowed up by the sea. The people would talk about this event for centuries. We're talking about it today. It's a picture of God's power illustrating grace and goodness generously applied. But wait, there's more. More signs of God's generosity. God was generous with His power, but during the Exodus, God was generous with His presence too. Fully engaged in their plight, He led them. He guided them every step of the way in a visible manner. In a pillar of cloud by day, that gave them some shade from the sun. And a pillar of fire by night, which lit the darkness. God led them. He He never left them. No, he was always there. That's so like God. Our Father God wants to be with us. It makes him happy. After Moses died, God appointed Joshua to take the Israelites across the finish line into the promised land. How did he inspire this young warrior to lead on, stay strong, be courageous? Simple. God just told him he'd be with them. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. What a gift. It's the same gift that Jesus offers to us. After handing out our marching orders and what we call the Great Commission, go and make disciples, our Savior says, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. That's a long time. He didn't say, I'll be with you until the end of the month, or at least next Tuesday, or I'll be with you until my schedule clutters up. I'll be with you until something more important arises, or I'll be with you until you get over the hump. I'll be with you if you stay on my good side, or I'll be with you if you show up at church in person every week, or I'll be with you if you tithe, or I'll be with you if you promise to be perfect just like me. No, there is no with you, if you language from Jesus. He's with you for the long haul, and by long haul, I mean eternity. Jesus was with you yesterday, he's with you today, and he'll be with you tomorrow. You might say that Jesus is generous with his time, and he wants to spend it with people like you. Yeah, you. If you're in doubt, ask Zacchaeus, the crooked tax collector. Ask Lazarus, the friend he wept for. Ask the ragtap group of fishermen, his budding entourage. Ask the blind man, the woman at the well, and the woman who wouldn't stop bleeding. Ask the centurion, or Peter's mother-in-law. Ask the demon-possessed. Ask the children he laughed with, the lepers he healed, the thousands he fed. Go ahead. Ask the little, the least, the lost, and the lonely. Ask a partridge in a pear tree, for all I care. Ask away. You might even ask my friend Judy Reed, but you'll have to wait until you get to heaven to do that. Judy Reed had cancer. She was single, alone, and way too young to die. I was an inexperienced, unschool minister when I walked in to visit her at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa. I strolled in with my highlighted Bible in my hand. I was nervous. I had no idea what I was going to really say or how to comfort her. I'll never forget the half hour I spent with Judy, she comforted me. My tears that day flowed not from sadness, but from amazement as she talked of her Savior and the peace she felt about whatever came next. She knew Jesus was actually with her, and that was all she needed. His presence, as real as the furniture in the room, was oxygen for her soul. Of course, we prayed for miraculous healing, but Judy had already surrendered the outcome. You know, I learned more about faith that day from Judy than from any sermon or seminary lecture that I have ever heard in my life. Jesus had time for Judy. He has time for you too. He is generous with his presence. If you're still skeptical about the nearness of Jesus, perhaps it's an awareness problem. Think about the last time you thought you were alone, but you weren't. Maybe someone snuck up behind you, or perhaps you walked around a blind corner and almost bumped into an oncoming stranger, or you got so lost in thought, you actually forgot you had company, whatever. The point is, you were startled when you suddenly realized the presence of another person right there with you. Something like this happened to Jacob. It had been a long day. Jacob settles down for the evening, slips into a deep sleep, and he dreams. He sees a stairway to heaven with angels ascending and descending its steps. Above the stairway stands God, who delivers a message of promise and blessing and hope. Genesis 28, 16 says, When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of that. Wow. Gives me chills every time I read it. A sacred moment indeed. Jacob was so moved, he set up a memorial stone to mark the event. Then he promised to give back to God a tenth of whatever God gave him. Perhaps it's time for you to wake up and realize God is in this place. That statement will be just as true tomorrow, wherever you are, as it is today. He is so generous with his presence that, like it or not, you can't escape it. Question, Lord, where can I go and flee your presence? Answer, nowhere. Not in the universe and not even in the metaverse. Some of you know what that means. From God's presence, you can neither run nor hide. So come to cognitive rest on this reality. You have his full attention. He's not bored with you. He doesn't have better things to do. He is with you. So let's circle back to the Israelites on their desert journey. This would last a while, say 40 years. Already generous with his power and presence, God now displays his open-handedness by providing for their physical needs. Shoes never wore out, clothes lasted decades, bread came from heaven, water from a rock, just what they needed right when they needed it. They got tired of man and asked for meat, so God sent quail. He piled it three feet deep and miles wide. Be careful what you ask for. When God gives, He doesn't hold back. When it comes to our well-being, God thinks of everything. What about their spiritual needs and their other needs? Well, he gave them commandments to guide them. He gave them a promised land flowing with milk and honey. He gave them prophets and priests. He gave them judges and kings. He gave them victory in battles. He gave them stories to tell their children. He gave them hope in a future. The big question is, why? Why does God give like this? Why does he do it? Well, Because God is love, and love gives. For God so loved the world, he gave. James 1, 16 and 17 says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. God's the great giver, and that's never going to change. For God so loved the world, he gave. He gave the ultimate gift, the gift you needed most, the gift no one else could give you. Just a couple weeks ago, a team of scientists and researchers located the Remains of Endurance. It's a vessel used by Ernest Shackleton in his Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition. Nearly two miles deep, the 144-foot wooden ship slept at the bottom of the icy waters of the Weddell Sea for 106 years. If you read accounts of this Amazing survival story, you will realize the ship did not go down easy. She was a strong vessel with sides almost two feet thick in most places. For five months, she faithfully carried the 28 men on board toward their destination, but merely a day or so before expected landfall, her voyage ended as she got trapped uh, in ice. Uh, The vessel was stuck in a frozen prison, immobilized, creaking, Groaning, she lasted nine more painful months. On November 21st, 1915, millions of tons of ice won the standoff, crushing endurance and spitting her to the bottom of the sea. Now what? Imagine their challenges. Ferocious weather, fickle ocean currents, uncertain food supplies, unspoken fears, hundreds and hundreds of miles from civilization, and no endurance to bring them home. Shackleton and his crew salvaged three smaller lifeboats and a host of useful supplies, setting up camp on a giant ice floe. It's a big sheet of ice. Um, This was the most inhospitable place on planet Earth, but they might as well have been on the dark side of the moon. One fact they knew for sure, they were completely on their own. The ship Endurance couldn't save them. No one could save them. They knew they had to save themselves. What follows is an unbelievable tale of perseverance, bravery, and sheer willpower. There's simply no other survival story quite like it. We don't have time to chronicle the details, but what's so amazing is all 28 men lived and made it back to where their adventure had started two years earlier. Through brilliant leadership, cooperation, and a passionate desire to survive, they were able to save themselves. When I read the final page of a book about this expedition and closed its covers a couple of weeks ago, I realized that Shackleton did something physically that we can't do spiritually. You can't save yourself. With or without endurance, no amount of perseverance, skill, luck, or desire can save you. Only Jesus can save you. For God so loved the world, He gave. He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When you were shipwrecked, marooned on a giant block of floating ice, tossed by the wind and waves, distant from an abundant life, cold, wet, hungry, hopeless, and helpless, Jesus came to find you. You didn't find Him he found you. And he gave his life for your life. As we close this morning, I hope you don't miss the signs. God is the great giver. He is the generous one. Haven't we proven our original premise? God's the great giver? I I think so. What now? Well, you're crafted in his image. Therefore, generosity is in your DNA, maybe it's time for you and I to go out there and prove it. Your happiness and well-being depend on it. Let's pray. Father God, we're so thankful for your word which enlightens us, tells us stories, brings us truth, eternal truth. We're thankful for your spirit that works in our hearts and our minds to persuade us and convict us and convince us and encourage us and do all the things Your Spirit does. Lord, I pray that we can um, not develop amnesia to all the good things that You're doing for us and that You're giving us, and You express Your generosity in a multiple, uh, amazing amount of ways. Help us to remember that and appreciate that, and thank you for that, and in turn, become people who are as generous as you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.